Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. So by now, we all know Kim Kardashian wore Marilyn Monroe's iconic 1962 Jean-Louis gown to the Met Gala 2022. And this was not just any Marilyn Monroe dress. This sparkly, body-clinging new number is arguably one of the most famous dresses in American pop culture history. It was worn by Marilyn to sing happy birthday to the president and her reported lover, John F. Kennedy, in 1962. Needless to say, the viewers of the Met Gala were shocked, and perhaps none more so than fashion conservators who looked on in horror as the very validity of their profession, which is tasked with preserving historically and culturally significant items of dress, appeared to have been undermined. Yeah, and so just what are the implications of the event? And more importantly, why should we care? So who better to answer these questions and more than one of the world's leading experts on the topic? Sarah Scaturo. A conservator specializing in fashion and textiles, Sarah was formerly the head conservator at the Met's Costume Institute, and today she speaks to us as the Eric and Jane Nord Chief Conservator at the Cleveland Museum of Art. We took a deep dive into the topic of fashion conservation with Sarah on Tuesday's episode, and today she joins us to discuss the implications of Kim's three-minute wearing of Marilyn's dress and why those three minutes have implications far beyond the Met Gala red carpet. Sarah, welcome back to Dressed. Thanks so much, Cassidy. It's good to be here again. Yeah, I know our listeners um, were waiting with bated breath for us to discuss the Kim Marilyn controversy, but I pretty much decided immediately that it was going to have to be its own episode because there's quite a lot to say on this very controversial topic. And I'm so excited to be speaking with someone who is an expert in fashion conservation. So before actually we dive into that controversy, I'd love if you could just maybe give us a brief history of the profession of fashion and textile conservation, how it's evolved over the years and where it stands today, both in terms of ethics, but how it's valued as a profession within museums. I think this kind of context is actually really important to this conversation. Great. Yes, I agree. And thanks so much for asking this question. So my dissertation for my PhD at Bard Graduate Center is actually tracing the history of fashion conservation. And it really starts in the 1960s. And what all of my research has kind of brought up, and I'm actually using a lot of old histories of textile and fashion conservators, is that for a while, our predecessors have struggled to gain legitimacy. And I don't think that that's very surprising given the gendered caste and ties to domesticity that fashion history and textile conservation have had to contend with, you know, mending and doing the laundry and all of that jazz. But fashion conservation really derived from two different strands. And the first was through the practice of textile conservation, um, which is to be expected. So textile conservation itself became a profession in the mid-20th century, and many conservators found themselves faced with conserving costume that was primarily military uniforms and church vestments. 
But what I found really interesting is that a second strand developed around the same time through the growth in dress studies and dress museology. Um, and through my research, I've discovered that what we would call today the first fashion conservators were really the um, early fashion curators, uh, women like Polaire Weissman and Anne Buck. And these were women who were charged with curating in what we mean the original sense of the word, which is caretaking their collection. And so they began developing the preservation methods that we use today, which um, include, you know, proper guidelines for handling, storage, and display. What I found really interesting is that the Costume Institute didn't hire its first conservator until the 1970s. And this was Liz Lawrence. Her title was Master Restorer. And even then, she was self-taught, and she came from the fashion industry itself. And it was only in the early 1990s that the Costume Institute hired its first program-trained conservator, and that was Chris Polachek. And then I actually came on after Chris left, and so I'm actually only the second program-trained conservator. That is so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so it is a pretty recent new profession that is still evolving. And so the first programs to train in textile conservation didn't come around until about the 1970s. And FIT's program, um, which was then called Museum Studies, Costume and Textiles, didn't start until the early 80s. And what's really interesting is that Betty Kirk, who you might know for her Madeline VNA pattern research, uh, she actually apprenticed under Liz Lawrence. And then she moved to the museum at FIT to both manage the lab and to teach in FIT's program. So I would say by the 1980s, the field had really professionalized so much that like, you know, Costume Society of America and Icon Costume, they actually issued resolutions against the wearing of historic clothing because, you know, they were getting alarmed at the continued incidences of collection objects being worn and damaged. But what I think this moment shows is that they really had enough confidence in themselves as a profession to say, hey, this is where we are. These are what is proper care of fashion overall. And I think that, you know, the field of fashion studies and textile conservation has continued to morph and solidify. Of course, issues of justice and sustainability are becoming more and more present. And what I'm really finding is that the differences between practice-based and theoretical research are starting to merge a lot more, where we're seeing theoreticians use practice to gain understanding, and we're seeing practitioners use theory to gain understanding. And as far as professions go, this is a pretty new profession. And in many ways, as you kind of spoke to, too, we're still fighting for validation of fashion and fashion studies, which is all you know, because it's a new profession, because of its association with women, because textiles and fashion garments aren't valued the same as, say, you know, a Van Gogh painting or whatnot. And all of this context, I think, is really important in relationship to what we are going to talk about today. And also the fact that not all museums are created equal, right? As we established in our previous episode, neither are all garments. So, you know, this Marilyn Monroe dress is particularly significant because of its cultural value. So how does the type of institution determine how dress as like a museum object are treated? And of course, we are aiming this conversation towards the differences between Ripley's Believe It or Not and say the Costume Institute at the Met, because those are two poles on what is actually a wide spectrum of institutions that do have costume collections or dress collections. Absolutely. And, you know, today, the Met would never let 
one of the Costume Institute's objects be worn for the gala. You know, they understand. They're, they're not going there. However, you know, museums did in the past. And Julia Petrov, I don't know if you know her work or her excellent book, The Fashion History Museums, Inventing the Display of Dress, she goes into the history of museums allowing their objects to be worn. But like I mentioned, by the 1980s, the field had recognized that this was not a practice that was sustainable if we wanted to preserve these collections. I was, however, I think like many others, struck by the irony of an iconic piece of American history being worn to an event meant to raise funds and to celebrate the preservation of fashion. So to talk about Ripley's, you know, Ripley's is not accredited. It is a for-profit institution. And it has, believe it or not, in its tagline, which I think openly gives us a clue about their commitment to professional museology. I don't understand all of their claims about how careful they were with the dress, since so much of it seemed performative. They highlighted that you know, white cotton gloves were being used, but if you know fashion conservators, you know, we don't usually wear white cotton gloves because you don't have the tactility. And you can even damage fabric by using white cotton gloves in your handling of it. And additionally, Ripley's called us conservationists, which I oh, think no. speaks I think it speaks for itself that you know if they were practicing proper fashion museology, they would probably get our profession's name right. So we do have two spectrums. We have, yes, the Met that would never let one of their garments be worn because they understand that their goal is to preserve art. And then we have Ripley's, which is really, you know, it's an edutainment firm at this point. But I would like to go one more stop on the spectrum, which is really interesting. And it's the role of the fashion archive within a design house. Because interestingly, those archives reside within the communications or marketing arms of the company. And so they are very much about safeguarding and deploying a company's DNA, right? Their brand DNA. So archivists at fashion heritage collections like those inside Chanel or Balenciaga, they have to balance providing access to the collection for design inspiration or promotional purposes. You know, sometimes that means these objects are being worn. And if they are damaged, usually a conservator might not repair them. It would instead go to the staff of the design house itself. And so these fashion archives are not museums, yet they try to aspire to many museological goals, yet they themselves have very much a for-profit aim, much like Ripley's does. That's a very good point. And that immediately made me think of Cardi B and like Terry Mugler because she wore that iconic like Venus gown, which I think was from the archive. And actually, you see a lot of actresses on the red carpet, like, and also Kim Kardashian's worn archival Terry Mugler. Of course, that designer was alive at the time that it was ha- that that happened. But that is a very, very interesting um, thing to consider. Balancing like celebrity and marketing with preservation, right? Yeah. And, you know, I've even had some fashion archivists reach out to me and say, thank you for lending your voice to this discussion, because I feel they're really caught in a hard place, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that's really, you know, unique to fashion, right? It is a commercial entity. Part of the fashion garments that go in museums are there because they existed within this fashion for-profit system in many ways. So that's, you know, it's a very interesting kind of 
balance yeah. to be had. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's meant to be worn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So when I saw Kim walk onto that red carpet wearing Marilyn Monroe's dress, my first thought was, how did this happen? And like, literally was like, that's, there's no way this is happening, right? That's a replica or whatever. And then almost immediately, my second thought was fashion conservators everywhere are like crying or they are like really pissed off right now. So I'm just curious what your initial reaction was when you saw that or heard about it. I don't know if you were watching. I saw it the morning after. And to be honest, when I was looking at the footage, when I first saw it, I was like, you know, who is this? Um, she can be such a shapeshifter. And, you know, Kim is undeniably gorgeous. And she looked, I thought, really amazing. And then I realized she was wearing Marilyn Monroe's real dress. And like, my stomach just dropped. Um, mainly because I have been so invested throughout my career in trying to affirm the value of preserving fashion, especially with its ties to commodification, consumerism, and frivolity. And to me, it felt like a betrayal to see such an iconic and historic dress be used for really grotesque marketing purposes. I mean, why not wear the reproduction, you know? And I was really unsubtle to consider that the Met and Vogue must have known about this plan and thus either directly or indirectly approved it by providing the changing rooms she used. Although I don't know anything about it, I have to say. So right away, I knew I wanted to add my voice to the discussion to say that in this instance, it was not the right decision to make. And I'm at a point in my career where I feel confident in adding my voice and I knew that I had the experiences to be an authority about this. Yeah, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I don't think, you know, we're not really going to talk too much about Kim herself today. I don't think she's to blame, quite frankly. She asked for something and they told her yes. Yes, um, exactly. And I think, in, and I do genuinely believe in her mind, she was paying homage to Marilyn. She was, in her mind, she was thinking, how can I up myself yet again? Well, I'm going to wear one of the most iconic women's dresses because Kim Kardashian, whether people like it or not, is a fashion icon. <laughs> so we're going to not spend so much time talking about Kim today, um, but really what went wrong and how it went wrong and you know what the future can bring because of this important conversation. So people were actually so shocked to learn that weeks after the event, this dress was damaged. But this is something fashion conservators or people in the know knew was happening in the minute they saw her walk out on the red carpet. So can you talk about the damage done to the dress, including that which is not immediately apparent to the naked eye? Sure. So, I mean, I want to be clear that I've never, ever even seen this dress. And, you know, Ripley says it wasn't damaged and we have to take into account their statement. It does seem, though, that the dress was in a very fragile state beforehand, which corresponds to the 2017 condition report that Ripley's has mentioned before. And so I can say from my own experience as the head conservator at the CI that I would have anticipated damage to occur and I would have recommended that this dress not be worn. And the kind of damage that would have occurred would have occurred from the repeated try-ons, putting it on, taking it off, walking up the steps, being exposed to light, maybe changes in humidity and temperature, potentially body makeup or body oils, although, you know, she 
I guess, didn't wear as much, but who knows if there were scents or anything. So there could have been any number of impacts to this dress. What I would say that if Ripley's had followed standard museum protocols, then a condition report would have been written before it left them. And then another one written or checked once it returned. And so they could potentially have a more recent report that goes into further detail about it. But for me, what I actually find more problematic is not the way that Ripley's is obviously monetizing the dress through allowing it to be worn by a famous celebrity, but it's also the irresponsible display and traveling they are subjecting the dress to. Um, conservators advise against excessive display because it does wear out garments. So every time you put it on and you take off a garment on a mannequin, you know, you risk this damage. And that doesn't even consider the vibrations and environmental fluctuations that it might be subject to during travel or the light damage that occurs from too much exposure. And Ripley's even knows this and acknowledges it. Um, they say on their own website that, quote, the company understands the risks associated with this, end quote. And what they're referring to is how they are sending the dress all over so that people can view it. So for me, this means that Ripley's is privileging the continual display, traveling, handling, exposure, and all that entails of the dress over its preservation. And some might defend this and say, well, they're providing access. And, you know, that is true. But what it comes down to is balance. And we fashion conservators are just simply advocating for the sustainable and responsible use of the cultural resources available to us so that future generations can also access them. Yeah, it's very short-sighted. Yeah, because you're not considering the long-term effects of this garment. And something we talked about Tuesday is like, how can you get creative about making garments accessible while you make replicas, which Kim wore a replica. So why didn't she just wear the replica the whole time? Because we do know the garment was damaged. I can't remember who, but someone went and viewed it and took kind of close-up pictures of before and after. So there's like obvious strain on some of the fastenings, a lot of the sequins that were once on it are now missing. So it's undeniable, even though she wore it for three minutes. I mean, there's that video of them with their cotton gloves, like pushing it over her hips, <laughs> which just makes you cringe because like, yeah. you know, we talked about an object's life and biography on Tuesday's episode. These are all such beautiful testaments to the power and importance of dress. And I can't remember if we talked about ghost bodies or not, but Marilyn Monroe's body was imprinted on that dress. Mm -hmm. She wore it for an extended period of time. And so her body oils, et cetera, were part of that dress. And now Kim's is on top of it. So as a conservator, can you talk about the garment's life trajectory and its material and cultural values a, a bit? like past, present, and future? So, you know, the object had a very specific past that was rather congealed in terms of what it represented with regards to Monroe and Kennedy. And of course, their affair, which I think is a pretty important factor to consider when thinking about the stress. It then found its way into Ripley's, whose mission, as we know, is to entertain and educate, they say. So Ripley's used their asset and that is what their dress is to them as something fantastic and exciting. 
that can bring them more money and wider audiences. So for me, it, it seems a logical choice for the company to feel that since they own this dress, they might as well increase its market value, especially if the Kardashian is clamoring to help them with that goal. So even though they didn't get money from her directly, they got the benefit of having contributions made in their name to charities by her, and of course, an immense and successful boost in their media exposure. But I do want to talk about the future, and I see two issues at stake, actually. And one of them I'm less concerned about than the other. And the first is that Kim has inserted herself into the life of this object, and now it will always have her as part of its narrative, whether Marilyn would have liked that. But regardless if Marilyn would have had an opinion, it's totally moot since, you know, Kim is now intrinsically linked to Marilyn. And Maybe Kim got her wish. And to some, this is actually the greater problem. This is the greater offense. And yet, if we go back to conservation, conservators themselves intervene in objects all of the time. And we leave our own traces all of the time. So we ourselves are engaged with and impacting objects, which, though less publicized, is no less real than what Kim's and Ripley's has done to that dress. And so for me, while I wish I didn't have to think of a Kardashian when contemplating this dress, there is actually a second issue that I'm more concerned about that the future may bring up about. And that is the precedent that this incident may set. And I know I'm not alone when I say that I have often been asked if I wear the clothes under my care. Um, and, you know, that question is, it's a totally valid question for the public to ask since, of course, clothing is so intrinsically and tied to us that you know, it's meant to be worn. But I have also been on the receiving end where my work, the objects I care for, are being denigrated as something unworthy of being held in a museum. They're being denigrated as something unworthy of being preserved. They are just dresses after all. And historically, our field has got past this danger through the act of professionalization. We have created professional associations, we have issued professional guidelines, and we have developed standard best practices. And yet, for me, this incident throws this all up in the air and proves to us fashion caretakers that if you have enough money or clout, that you could totally disregard the professionals and all those invested in the life of the object. And this shows that, in essence, we as a profession and the object's lives don't really matter. And it becomes a real slippery slope where caretakers are pressured by people who have the power, who can, you know, pay to play. And this is the future I'm nervous about because fashion is expensive to take care of. And so I can reasonably see some museums, some collection caretakers, some trustees considering whether renting out their collection might bring in money that could then ironically be used for its preservation. Yikes. And that's really well-founded. I mean, you read about, I can't remember which collection it was most recently, but they're constantly raising funds. Not every fashion collection has like the Vogue attached and Anna Wintour attached to it to raise funds. So they're constantly raising money to upkeep these collections that are just not as valued as like, say, a college university's football team. Agreed. So that is, that's a very valid point. So the damage to Marilyn's dress is both material and immaterial. What are the possible broader implications of this event? And do you see any positive benefits coming out of this situation? I guess you kind of just talked about broader implications, but 
I'm actually pleased that this controversy has put a spotlight on a profession that so often goes unnoticed and unappreciated. I don't think most people, you know, the public at large, know about fashion conservation. Um, And now they do, hopefully. So what do you think about that? Totally. I mean, the silver lining for me is that for the first time ever, the phrase fashion conservators was actually (laughs) headlines in a way that brought attention to our profession. You know, my favorite, there was an art news headline that said something like, Kim Kardashian wore Marilyn Monroe's dress to the Met Gala and fashion conservators went OMG WTF. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, we did. You know, our field is not well known, uh, so much so that we're often misnamed conservationists, uh, which, as you all know, is a term reserved for those who do environmental conservation. There is a nuance that got lost in the press, though, and this is something I kept bringing up to reporters, but many just didn't want to include this because it complicated a pretty simplistic narrative, right, of conservators versus Kim Kardashian, which is not actually accurate anyway. But um, when Icon Costume issued their statement soon after the dress incident, they reiterated their stance they've held for almost 40 years, which is that in all cases, historic clothing and collections should not be worn. And, you know, they emphasize this should never, ever be worn. But the reality is that the fields of conservation and museology are, are evolving. And these blanket do not wear bands are Western centric in their philosophical basis. And so Icom Costumes, soon after issuing this, was actually called out on Twitter um, by Pu'uwai Carnes, who is the director of audience and insights at Te Papa Museum in New Zealand. And she essentially said, you know, hey, you're neglecting to consider that many communities, especially those who have cultural heritage that is held in museums who may or may not have attained them ethically, do have a moral right to both access and use their heritage. And in fact, these communities, more so than the conservators themselves, or curators themselves, are the authorities on the values and meanings that an object holds. So this type of conservation, which has emerged in the past you know, 20 years, is actually called people-based conservation. So it privileges people over the material. And so there actually are instances when a conservator will want to respectfully facilitate a community accessing wearing or activating an object that holds deep meaning. And I was really pleased to see that Icon Costume issued an apology and said, you know what, you're right. And then they've recently actually reached out to me to be part of their working group to update their guidelines to incorporate a more people-based approach to fashion preservation. I am so glad that you brought this up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because this is something, we did a brief episode about this and this is not something we got to, but that was such a powerful conversation to come out of this and such an important conversation. Museums themselves are problematic for many reasons and that a lot of the things that end up in their collections were stolen through colonialism, et cetera. And there's a lot of things that just get sent back and repatriated to various cultures. You read about that all the time. So for these museums to start developing these relationships where they can loan out these really important pieces also, that's an incredible way to move forward. So yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. So there are good things to come out of this after all. <laughs> there are. And, you know, I definitely want to give props to Kulai, who was really vocal about this to Icon costume. Yes. 
let's keep moving this conversation forward beyond the Euro-Western-centric focus of so many museums, especially in relationship to fashion. But that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) It sure is. (laughs) (laughs) So what are your hopes for the future of fashion conservation? Yeah, you know, I have so much admiration for the emerging generation of fashion conservators. You know, even after almost 20 years in the field, I, I still feel like I'm emerging, but especially when I look to the newer conservators and I see how justice oriented they are. You know, they are tackling so much structural inequity. They are fighting for more access into the field, a broadening of the communities we engage with, a better quality of life more salary transparency, and just plain more respect overall. And throughout my career, I've I've tried to pay it backwards to my mentors, but also forward to my mentees and their mentees and their mentees by trying to push the field forward with them, um, working with them and being inspired by them. And so ultimately, I I would like to see our field become more accessible in terms of how to get into it and how to stay in it. I want us to be paid better. I want us to change the makeup of who gets to be in this profession, which is still overwhelmingly white, female, and upper middle class. And for that to happen, we also need fashion conservators to become leaders in the field, you know, within museums, within archives, design houses, and just cultural heritage overall. And so what I really want to see is more opportunity for us to develop our leadership skills. Because I, I believe the more leaders we have, the more power we have to change what is not working. Sarah, thank you so much for being here with us again today. This is such a wonderful conversation and such an important and central voice that's been part of this conversation. So thank you for taking the time to share it here. Thank you so much, Cassidy and April, for having me. Dress listeners, that does it for us today. May you consider why the preservation and conservation of fashion matters next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you find images to accompany each week's episode. And if you have a moment and you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.